Chapter 2 of Prince Silverwings and Other Fairy Tales by Edith Ogden Harrison. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 2 The Veiled Lady. Once upon a time, there lived a king who ruled over the most beautiful country in the world. Never were greener fields or yellower grain and the bright sun seemed to shine into the hearts of all the people, making them happy and kind and gentle. Life was always joyous here, and the sky was never clouded. Each one did what he could to make life pleasant for his neighbor. The little kingdom was known far and wide by the name of the Happy Valley. You would never suppose that the king of such a country could have anything to worry him. Nevertheless, he did. He had but one son, a fine, handsome young fellow, whom he loved dearly, and who returned his father's love. Yet this son was the cause of all the trouble. His father was growing old, and wished before he died to see his son married and settled in life. But the young man had an idea that he must fall in love before he could marry anyone, and somehow he had never seen a girl that took his fancy. The months and the years crept by, and the young prince showed no desire to choose a queen from among the maidens of his country. The old king worried a great deal over this. He sent to all the neighboring kingdoms for pictures of the unmarried princesses, but his son found fault with them all. One was too tall, another too short, while a third was too fat, and a fourth too thin. Then one was too dark, or perhaps too fair. One squinted a little, or the other's eyes had a straight, bold stare in them. In short, Young Prince Tsarus could not be pleased, but he was at heart a pretty good sort of chap, and he hated to worry his dear old father, especially about such a trifle as choosing a wife. So finally he began to feel a little downhearted himself. Surely, he thought, there must be some good-looking young princess in the world whom he could learn to love. Following the example of some great ancestor of his, Prince Tsarus had chosen twelve of the bravest young nobles of his court for a bodyguard. These youths were sworn to protect the weak and defend the right whenever necessary, and they were famous throughout the country for their courage. The prince was very fond of hunting, and often followed the chase through the forest with his knights. Returning one afternoon from this pursuit, the party suddenly saw running before them a beautiful white deer with silver-tipped horns. They made every effort to capture it, but the graceful creature sprang into a thicket and escaped. Several times afterwards, when out hunting, the prince saw the same deer, but had always escaped from him. At last, one day, he made up his mind that he would follow it alone until he overtook it. Through fields and woods he went, sometimes almost losing sight of the little animal, but still trying harder than ever to overtake it. Toward sunset, when he was just on the point of giving up the chase, the deer stopped suddenly before a little cottage. Saras was astonished to see a building like this out in the heart of the woods, especially as he did not remember ever to have noticed it before. He was even more surprised when he saw the door of the cottage open, and a lady, wrapped from head to foot in a long white veil, step out. She caressed and fed the deer, and then, though Saras was not close enough to hear what was said, she spoke a few words to it. The little animal bowed three times before her, and ran off. The lady then went back into the cottage and closed the door. Surprised as he was at all this, there was nothing for Prince Saras to do but return home. His curiosity had got the better of him, however, 
and the next afternoon he slipped away from the hunters again. After a long search he found the little cottage, and hid himself under a rose bush just below the steps where the lady would appear, and where he could see and hear all that passed without being seen. About sundown the white deer came bounding up to the cottage. The door opened as before, and the veiled lady appeared. This time, Saras heard her voice very plainly as she said, Faithful friend, how will this end? When comes the night, bold and bright, who will bring the magic ring? The deer, bowing three times, replied, When the moon shines three nights old, then comes a prince brave and bold. Then it disappeared in the forest, and the lady went back into the cottage as before. Three times the prince saw and heard this strange thing. On the third night, no longer able to conceal his curiosity, he came out quickly from his hiding place, just as the deer was disappearing, and stood before the lady. Tell me, he cried, what is the magic ring? Startled at the sudden appearance of so handsome a stranger, it was several moments before she could reply. The ring, she said at last, is the magic charm for good in my family. To those who rightfully own it, it brings all the blessings of life. But the owner must live in the ways of truth. He must have great love and charity for all mankind. Otherwise the magic powers of the ring are useless to him. This ring has been an heirloom in my family for many years. But alas, at my christening it was stolen from us by a wicked fairy, who was angry because she had not been invited to the party. Feeling that the ring was not quite safe with her, this fairy gave it to the demon of unrest, an ugly monster living in the haunted mountain. He who attempts to regain the treasure will meet with many difficulties and dangers, but if any knight is willing to undertake the task, he has only to take with him twelve brave soldiers and three charms that I will give him, and he cannot fail to be successful. And I have made a vow to marry the man who restores to me the magic ring. Prince Saras was eager for just such an adventure as this. He hesitated, however, when he thought that, if successful, he would have to marry a person whose face he had never seen. But, he said to himself, my father is anxious to see me married. I do not love anyone else, and perhaps after all this lady may be very lovely. She certainly has a queenly air about her. So he decided that he would take the risk. When he had pledged himself to the task, the lady opened a locket that she wore about her throat, and gave him a pretty little acorn of golden green. Then, going into the cottage, she returned in a moment and put into his hands a sword, the hilt of which was set with hundreds of flashing diamonds. Last of all, she unpinned from the bosom of her gown a tiny golden rose, and this also she gave him. These three charms, sir knight, she said, will protect you and your followers through the enchanted forest which you must pass, before you come to the haunted mountain where the wicked demon lives. Take them, and on the day that you return successful I will meet you in your father's palace. That night the prince called together his twelve followers, and asked them if they were willing to undertake the journey with him. They consented joyfully, for of late they had not much fighting to do, and they longed for a little excitement. Having made all arrangements, Saras went alone to bid farewell to the veiled lady of the forest. His surprise was great, however, to find no trace whatever of the cottage. He rubbed his eyes, thinking it must all have been a dream but there was the sword, the acorn, and the rose, which had been given him the day before, so he knew he could not have been dreaming. Next he went to his father and told him of his plans. 
the king pleaded with Cyrus to give up so foolish an idea, and told him of a picture he had received that very morning of a beautiful princess, whom he had hoped would win his son's affection, and so brighten his own life forever. The young man's heart was touched by his father's grief, and though he would not give up his journey, he promised to stop on his way and see this lovely Princess Martine, whose picture was certainly charming. At last Prince Cyrus set forth with his twelve comrades, each mounted on a snowy white horse. After several days they came to the kingdom of the Princess Martine, and remembering his promise, Cyrus sent a messenger to say that he would be pleased to wait on the princess, if she would permit him to do so. An answer came at once, saying that she would receive him that night in the great hall of the palace. So early in the evening, Cyrus dressed himself as became a prince of royal blood, and with his followers gaily attired, set out to greet the Princess Martine. As they approached her palace, the building and ground seemed ablaze with light and splendor. Tiny lanterns were thickly scattered over the lawns, and the windows and halls of the palace were lit with thousands of colored lamps. Nightingales were singing sweetly from golden cages hung everywhere about. On a gorgeous throne in the great hall sat the Princess Martine, with twelve lovely maidens grouped about her. She was far lovelier than anything Saris had ever dreamed of, and at first sight he was completely overcome by her beauty. She was very much like the portrait he had seen, and yet a thousand times more attractive. No artist could have painted her bewitching mouth, or caught the glint of fire in her golden hair, or the beautiful blue of her eyes. Before the night had passed, Saris was so much in love that he joyfully accepted the princess's invitation to spend several days as her guest. All thought of the magic ring, of his father and of his country, had left his mind. Nor did his followers think to remind him of his duty, for they too were just as much in love with the princess's twelve maidens. With hunting parties by day and balls and banquets by night, the time passed all too swiftly. At the close of one very happy day, when they had ridden together, and Saris had told her of his love, the princess wished to know how it was that he had come to her kingdom. Then he told her the story of the magic ring, and how he had engaged to rescue it and bring it back to the lady of the forest. But he added that his love had now overcome every other desire, and that if the princess would return with him to his father's kingdom, he would ask for no greater joy. No, no, she replied earnestly. I could not love you as I would unless I felt that you loved your own honor above all else. The word of a prince is sacred, and must not be broken. Restore the magic ring to its rightful owner. Then tell her that you love another and wish to be released from your vow. If she is willing to set you free, return to me. Cyrus knew that this was the only honorable course for him to follow. So hard as it was, he quickly made up his mind, and early the next morning the little party, sad at heart, set out once more on their journey. For three days they traveled through trackless wastes and hot desert sands. On the fourth day they came in sight of the enchanted forest, just beyond which stood the haunted mountain. The great trees of the forest nodded invitingly to them, and after the scorching sand of the desert the green shade seemed heavenly. Little streams of cool water bubbled among the trees, and beautiful wild flowers made a soft carpet beneath their feet. The forest seemed filled with birds, whose sweet singing lulled the nights almost to sleep. The gentle swaying of the trees made them dizzy also, and worn out as they were, it was with great difficulty that they could resist the temptation to lie down and rest. 
They had gone but a little way in the wood, when they saw before them a group of beautiful young girls dancing and making merry. Feeling sure that such lovely creatures could do them no harm, the knights approached, and were about to accept the drinks of cooling water offered them by the maidens. But something aroused Saris's suspicions, and drawing his diamond-hilted sword, he threw it among the group of girls. Instantly they changed to ugly old witches, and fled wildly in every direction. The prince and his men were now wide awake, and their brains were clear once more. Strange to say, they could now understand what the birds were singing. How clear it sounded, and how well they understood. Alack a day, turn not that way. Back again, we pray. Turn to the right. There you must fight. Fight till dawn of day. They guessed that these birds were no other than knights who had been bewitched in the forest, and they knew that their advice should be followed. So taking a long path which led to the right, Saris and his party were going along very quietly, when they noticed just ahead of them a queer-looking old man hobbling along as if in great pain. The prince felt sorry for the poor fellow, and starting forward to help him, placed his hand very kindly on the old man's shoulder. He had hardly done so, however, when he heard shouts of wild laughter, and found himself and his companion struggling in a slimy marsh. Snakes and other hideous things crawled around them, and they felt themselves sinking deeper and deeper in the mire. Suddenly a bird above them sang out, Touch the acorn, Prince Saris. By a mighty effort the young man did so, and in an instant he and his companions were safe on sound land and their horses' backs once more. They now found themselves at the foot of a great iron mountain, the only entrance to which was by means of a huge gate guarded by two fierce dragons, whose roar could be heard for miles around. Brave as the knights were, they felt a thrill of horror at the sight of these awful creatures. But remembering his sword, Saris drew it forth and swung its flashing blade in the faces of the dragons. Instantly their roaring ceased, and they crouched on the ground like huge dogs, permitting the party to pass safely through. Once inside, Saris made his way straight to the palace of the Demon of Unrest, which stood at the very top of the mountain. They found the entrance to the palace guarded by a witch with one eye in the middle of her forehead, and claws instead of hands. At sight of the magic acorn, she meekly unlocked the great door, and ushered the party into a long hall. This was a damp and moldy place. Toads hopped about the floor, owls hooted from above, and groans and cries echoed from all directions. Through this hall they passed into a large room with no windows at all. In the dim light they could just manage to see a chair in the middle of the room, on which perched a queer old dwarf about two feet in height, and as broad as he was long. This was the demon of unrest, the ruler of the haunted mountain. His eyes, deep-set in his head, were formed of balls of fire that flashed out red and yellow, and when he spoke his voice actually shook the whole palace. Black bats flew about his head, and around his feet, so thick that it was impossible for anyone to approach him, were hundreds and hundreds of frogs, which kept up a continual croaking. At his side stood two other dwarfs, even smaller than himself, each with one hand resting on a tiny trunk or box, inside of which, on a red velvet cushion, glittered the magic ring. The prince and his men had barely time to notice all these things, when the rooms suddenly swarmed with little imps, who quickly overpowered the knights by mere force of numbers, and bound and gagged them. Well, well, laughed the demon. 
You thought to get the ring, did you? That ring never leaves my sight, for I sleep with one eye open, and day and night it is always before me. Now of all those who have tried to take it from me, your fate shall be the worst. You have actually entered my palace, while none of the others ever got beyond the enchanted forest. You shall be cast into the dungeon of torture until I can think of some more terrible punishment. When our little company of knights found themselves bound hand and foot, and lying in the bottom of a dark slimy dungeon beneath the palace, they lost all hope, but Saris now remembered the words of the veiled lady. When you are helpless and in great need, press the center of the golden rose. With difficulty, the prince managed to reach the rose and to press its center. In a moment, a wonderful thing happened. The fetters that bound them fell away, and a great blaze of light filled the dungeon. In the midst of this light stood a fairy with golden wings, who spoke in a sweet voice, saying, Master of the Golden Rose, command me and I will obey. Dazed at his sudden delivery, the prince replied, Show me how I may secure the magic ring. He had hardly said the words, when he and his followers found themselves in the bedchamber of the demon of unrest. The awful dwarf was asleep, but with one eye open as usual. With her brilliant light, the fairy completely dazzled this eye, and he was helpless. The two guardians of the ring started up in astonishment, and for an instant forgot to hold the box containing their treasure. They, too, were now blinded by the light, and in a moment Saris had the ring on his own finger. Now, said the fairy, your power is greater than mine. See that you use it well. Slowly the light about her grew fainter and fainter, and with her finally disappeared. From the moment of slipping the ring on his finger, the prince felt a strange new feeling of unlimited strength and power. As he stood facing the dwarf, who was slowly recovering from his stupor, he felt that he could easily conquer him. But the demon had also undergone a great change. His eyes were no longer fire, but dull and heavy, and he could only move with great difficulty. He crawled to where Sara stood, and fawned like a dog before him. Wretch! cried the prince. I would that I had the power to restore all of your victims, and to make you suffer as they have suffered. At these words the dwarf uttered a cry of rage. There was a terrific crash, and the palace walls seemed to be falling. The wish of the prince had been fulfilled. All the enchanted people had been restored to their human forms, and the demon of unrest had vanished forever. The crash and tumbling of the palace had caused Saris to close his eyes for a moment. When he opened them again, he found himself and his companions lying at the foot of a green hill not far from his father's palace. He felt of the ring on his finger, and knew with joy that the object of his journey had been accomplished. His next thought was of the Princess Martine. What should he do if the veiled lady insisted on claiming him for her husband? But surely she would listen to reason, and would release him. Cyrus and his men were welcomed home with great joy and there was general rejoicing throughout the kingdom. But the prince was sad at heart, and could think only of the veiled lady. It was late in the afternoon, when Saris and his father had about made up their minds that this mysterious person had forgotten the engagement, that a herald announced her arrival. She was admitted at once, and Saris placed within her hands the long-lost magic ring. Then, before she could thank him for his great bravery, he told her the story of his love for the Princess Martine and begged that he might be allowed to marry her. "'Brave Saris,' replied the lady, "'you have given me your pledge, and it must be fulfilled. 
but if at the altar when you see my face you still desire to be released, your wish will be granted. Though we could not possibly guess the meaning of these strange words, the prince was satisfied. The marriage had been set for that evening, and the hour was now at hand. The whole court was assembled in the chapel, and here at the altar, dressed in his finest robes of silk and ermine, the prince sadly awaited the arrival of his unwelcome bride. It was not long before a blast of trumpets announced her entrance. Twelve lovely maidens attended her, and after each maiden walked two little pages carrying the trains. Following these were two handsome boys bearing the soft white cushion on which the couple were to kneel. Last of all came the bride, a heavy veil of soft fine lace falling to the hem of her lovely gown and completely hiding her features. She reached the altar, and then, before the ceremony could begin, she raised her hand and spoke. I have something to say to you all. Though he has never seen my face, Prince Saras has kept his word of honor and fulfilled his pledge as a brave knight should. Know you all that I now release him from Svau, if he so wishes it, and hold him no longer bound to me. As she finished speaking, she threw back the veil which covered her head, and there, smiling with love and happiness, stood the Princess Martine. Forgive me, she whispered to the prince, who stood before her quite overcome by this sudden turn of affairs. I am the Veil Lady of the Forest. I had heard of your indifference to all maidens, and so I took this way of winning your love and of regaining the magic ring. If you do not wish to make me your queen, I can go back to my own country. But needless to say, she did not go back, and Prince Saras and the Princess Martine lived in great happiness for many years after. End of chapter 2 Recording by Stephen Fellows